Good afternoon. So good to see everyone today. If you have a Bible, please get ready to turn it to Psalm chapter 13 is where we'll be meditating on this afternoon. In the perennially best-selling classic book, When Things Fall Apart, America's beloved Tibetan Buddhist nun, Pima Chodron, argues that when the difficulties of life come, we should abandon hope. She says hope is wishful thinking and that we should step back from this kind of hope that is really the pursuit of an illusion. She writes, and I quote, without giving up hope, there's always something better to be. There's always someone better to be. And we will never relax with where we are or who we are. As long as we are addicted to hope, we feel that we can tone our experience down or liven it up or change it somehow, and we continue to suffer a lot. And she conclusively states, relaxing with a present moment, relaxing with hopelessness, relaxing with death, not resisting the fact that things end, that things pass, that things have no lasting substance, that everything is changing all the time, that is the basic message, close quote. So her basic message is simple and clear. Accept life as it is, full of pain and full of suffering. Stop fighting it, stop struggling, stop expecting. Let it go. Enjoy whatever life you can, nothing more, nothing less. But the scriptures teach us an opposing truth. And Jeremiah 6:13 and 14 says of such counsel from prophet to priests everyone deals falsely they have healed the wound of my people lightly says God and they say peace peace when there is no peace Ezekiel 7:25 says when anguish comes they will seek peace but there will be none In our passage this afternoon in Psalm 13, the psalmist doesn't abandon hope. Rather, he adheres to hope, even as he wrestles with unyielding and excruciating despair and feeling abandoned by God. We're continuing our intermittent series, Summer in the Psalms, examining 10 chapters, 10 psalms, each summer in the months of June, July, and August, until we cover all 100 50 psalms. So should the Lord tarry and give us more years together, we are in year two of 15. Uh, This summer, we're studying chapters 11 through 20. And as you know, I've been encouraging all of us to get in the habit of reading through the entire book of psalms each summer. So all you have to do is just read 50 chapters a month for June, July, and August. So I hope that many of you are almost through the first 50 chapters. If you started, continue reading two to three chapters each weekday, and you will be on a good path. If you have not yet started for June, uh, with nine days left of June, just the weekdays, you can read about five and a half chapters a day, and then you can be caught up to read two to three chapters uh, in July and August. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'll just let the Spirit of God convict you as He will. In the passage we're examining this afternoon, the author of the psalm, David, models for us how the godly lament and how in suffering God's people cling to faith that leads to praise. When the bitter afflictions and sorrows of life comes, 
and not only comes when it lingers and remains and it doesn't let up for months, for years, for decades. How can miserable Christians sing? Psalm 13 is a congregational psalm gifted to all believers of all generation to hope and trust in our God of steadfast love. So from Psalm 15, I want to share with you three ways Christians can cling to hope even in despair. Here's the outline so you can follow. Point number one, honestly lament from verses one and two. Honestly lament. Point number two, desperately pray or persistently pray from verses three and four. And point number three, faithfully praise. Faithfully praise from verses five through six. Brothers and sisters, I pray this message will strengthen you and encourage you and remind you that God is with you. Let me say that again. God is with you in your distress. You have a reason to praise him this afternoon, no matter what prolonged trial or sorrow you are carrying this moment. In Christ, you have a way to persevere to the end. Amen? I pray that through this word, like the psalmist, if you came here this afternoon sorrowing, that you will leave here singing. And if you are here and you are not a Christian or are not sure that you are, we welcome you. We're so glad that you are here. There's no better place for you to be on Father's Day than our Heavenly Father's house. We have been praying for you, each of you, that you would come, uh, that you would feel welcome. And so we pray that you are uh, feeling welcomed. We pray this message will point you to Jesus Christ, who shows us God's faithful, enduring love. And we pray that you will come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior today. So without further ado, let's turn now to our passage found on page 453 in the blue Bibles around you. And as you listen, I want to encourage you, please keep your Bibles open throughout the entire duration of the passage. More than looking to me, look at the Bible, look at the Word, and follow along as I read and preach to help you better retain these words. And by the way, if you do not have a Bible at home to read, please take one of those blue Bibles with our nice little logo in the back as a gift from us to help you grow in studying God's Word. Psalm chapter 13, it says this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. How can Christians cling to hope in utter despair? Point number one, through honest lament. Through honest lament. Look with me to verses one and two. Again, it says this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? The first observation we can make is the psalmist question. It's very obvious. It's very apparent there. How long? How long? 
How long? How long? The phrase is repeated four times in poetic repetition to express not only the depths of the psalmist's despair, but also to denote the length of his prolonging suffering. Now, all of us have experienced sorrow and suffering to one degree or another, and every one of us have overcome or persevered through many of them. But this particular affliction in which the psalmist was enduring was one that would not relent. It kept pummeling. It kept punishing. It kept demoralizing. To the point, the psalmist was utterly depressed. The first phrase, how long, O Lord? That breaking off of a sentence, a rhetorical device known as apostiopesis, just those four words, how long, O Lord, means to express extreme emotion. You see, David needed no other words. He had been petitioning the Lord for relief over and over and over and over and over and over again to the point his patience was wearing thin. Do you see these are words of someone who had been wrestling in his despondency? How long, O Lord? How long? How long? How long? The Psalms second and third questions, will you forget me forever? And how long will you hide your face from me? communicates to us David felt as if he was abandoned by God entirely. But note this, surely David knew of God's character, how the faithful God delivered him out of the hands of lions and bears and even the giant Goliath as a young shepherd boy, as according to 1 Samuel 17.36. We have no context clues to pinpoint exactly when David is writing this specific psalm, but surely David knew of God's promise in Deuteronomy 31.6 and Joshua 1.9. He knew the scriptures. Be strong and be courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. David had surely experienced God's love and God's faithfulness in his life. Yet the experience of this particular, this specific trial made him feel as if God had forgotten him. And this divine forgetfulness meant much more than mere loss of mental recollection by God, which God would never do. You understand that, right? But what David experienced when he complains God has forgotten him was that God wasn't answering his prayers. When the psalmist expresses that God had forgotten him, he is communicating that God was not coming to his aid. You said you are the very present help in time of need. Yet God, where are you? That was David's quandary. David was calling on God, but God seemed silent. In fact, God was silent. And the adverb forever indicates that David wondered if the situation would ever change. After going to God repeatedly, Again and again, day after day, no answer. So the question may be rephrased, how long, O Lord, will you continue? Will you continue to forget me? And the following question adds to the force of the lament. How long will you hide your face from me? Now in the Old Testament, hiding one's face is a figure of speech to signify the withholding of one's favor or blessing. As in Psalm 30, verse 7, which says, Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountains stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. 
as opposed to the well-known verse, number 625, which says, the Lord make his face shine on you, and when his face shines on you, he is gracious to you. And so the Lord's deafening silence and seeming distance and cold shoulder frustrated David with much anguish. Look at verse 2 again. It says, how long, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David had to resort to literally counseling his own soul in futility, which instead of relieving him, grieved him all the more. This inner sorrow was not one of physical pain, but one of emotional and spiritual distress. He was filled with a sadness in his heart that nearly immobilized him. How long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day, all the day, every minute, every hour? It will not let up. How long, O Lord? I wonder if you are starting to grasp the intensity of the psalmist's dark depression. As Pastor Zach Eswine writes in Spurgeon's Sorrow, a book that I've been recommending, he says, the mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh can only bear a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. Are you getting the picture of David's despair? Perhaps you know of it. Perhaps you've experienced something similar. Perhaps you struggled in it or are currently struggling with it now. The agonizing, the unrelenting torment of grief and misery. Perhaps an extended season of waiting in joblessness. You've applied and applied resume after resume and no called back. Perhaps a perpetual season of financial difficulty. You are barely making ends meet. Debt is accruing. You are living each month paycheck to paycheck. Lord, how long? Perhaps a prolonged season of singleness. Year after year goes by and no potential spouse in sight. Date after date, a disappointment. Incompatible. You feel like giving up. You feel like compromising. You feel all alone. Lord, how long? Perhaps you are experiencing an ongoing rough patch in marriage. You are questioning whether you will make it out this time. Who would have thought the person you thought would love you forever and the person you are supposed to love through the good times and bad would turn out to be a person you can't even stand to be with in the same room? You're tired of the fights. You're tired of miscommunication. Lord, Lord, how long? Perhaps for some of you, decades of family conflict. Perhaps praying and sharing the gospel with unbelieving family members or friends with no visible fruit. Perhaps for some, an uncertain season of infertility. Perhaps for some, a chronic illness, mental illness, a physical malady, a lingering trauma from past abuse. And you're asking yourself, God, are you there? Do you care? God, do you know? How long? How long? How long? How long? The worst of it all for the psalmist was to know that he believed in the one true God, Yahweh. That's the name David calls on in verse 1. 
Yet in this perplexing spiritual drought, the enemy seemed to be dominating. The enemy seemed to be exalted. The enemy seemed to be more present than the God who was supposed to not leave or forsake. Brothers and sisters, how do we make sense of it? When the God who promises faithfulness, when the God who is the faithful one seems to be absent, seems to be silent, seems to be MIA, missing in action, what do we do? What do we do? Well, brothers and sisters, Psalm 13 teaches us a very, very important lesson. For anyone who has struggled in such despair, for anyone who has felt what David has felt, here is God's invitation. Here is God's loving embrace. Listen carefully. You can be a Christian and have sorrow in your heart. You can be a lover of God, yet wrestle with your faith. You can be a knower of God's word, yet question God's purposes as long as your complaints are to God and not about God or, God forbid, against God. You see, there is a difference between worldly complaining or grumbling versus biblical lamenting. The one who knows God and fears God brings his or her complaints to God in times of distress rather than turn away from God. As I shared with you in the series intro, nearly a third of the psalm in the Psalter, out of 150 psalms, a third are psalms of laments. And through them, what is God doing? God is teaching his people, brothers and sisters, how to rightly deal with sorrows and with griefs and with anxieties and despair and depression and doubts and fears and worries through him. No wonder as the world continues to veer far from God, as the culture and society continues to oppose God, we hear of so many more people depressed, anxious, worried. Christian, dear Christian, my family, the Lord through Psalm 13 and these Psalms are teaching us how to properly lament. As Pastor Mark Volgrup says in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It is not only how Christians grieve, it is the way Christians praise God through their sorrows. Lament is a pathway to praise when life gets hard. So dear Christian, ask yourself today, do you lament? Do you know how to lament? Perhaps you need to understand why it is necessary, why you need to learn how to do it, how to lament. Neil Stewart writes in his article, Do You Feel Abandoned by God in Table Talk magazine? And I quote, It's right to lament God's seeming absence. The healthy soul remains acutely sensitive to the nearness of God. When God seems to withdraw, we notice. When God seems distant, Laissez-faire contentment is not a virtue. When God seems distant, contentment is not a virtue. God wants us to bring our honest petitions to him and has given us a template, a model to use when we do. God has given us such laments because he knows, he knows we need them. He knows that we will need them. 
We can all expect times when we will feel cut off from God in every conceivable way. We will feel tempted to conclude all these things, all these people are against me. Well, this psalm reminds us that such fears are not abnormal. Our souls are not malfunctioning. Others have trodden this way before. You and I are not alone when we feel this way. Even though the psalmist feels forsaken, the Holy Spirit, the truth is, brothers and sisters, hasn't left him. After all, he, God, is the one inspiring these words, the words of this psalm. Close quote. Amen? Dear brothers and sisters of New Covenant Baptist Church, when God seems to be absent in your struggles, it is not God's will for you to pick up yourself by your bootstraps to work hard and do better. It is not God's will that you merely sink into your sorrows and drown in them in self-pity. It is His will for you to look to Him, to come to Him, and to lay your burdens at His feet, to come to Him in humble and honest lamenting. Amen? I know for many of us in the Western culture, this kind of lamenting is very foreign and unnatural. So let me start by saying what it is not. It is definitely not. It is certainly not abandoning hope. Minimizing, undermining, ignoring, overlooking your suffering will not solve the issue. You need to know that the very source of your despair is the very instrument in which the Lord is using you to draw you near to himself. There is a sovereign purpose in our suffering and our sorrows. There is a divine design for our despair. As Pastor Zach Eschwine says again, let's remind ourselves at the outset in itself, sadness or grief is God's gift to us. It is how we get through. He says it is an act of faith and wisdom to be sad about sad things. It is an act of faith and wisdom to be sad about sad things. In this fallen world, sadness is an act of sanity. Our tears the testimony of the sane. In other words, this pastor is saying, don't pretend everything is all right when it's not all right. Christians of all people ought to know it is our daily and constant dependence on God. It is our daily and constant dependence on God that will persevere us to the end. The Christian life is not about going to him only when we need him. The Christian life is not about health, wealth, and prosperity. That is heresy. Christianity is about depending on Him daily, trusting on Him wholly, following Him humbly in honest recognition of ourselves and of this broken, fallen world. And lamenting is a means in which sorrowing Christians can sing. You need to know that being a faithful follower of God is not only through psalms of praise, but also through psalms of lament. Just as a family who loves one another grow in their love through joys and sorrows, ups and downs, our trust in God grows. Our trust in God flourishes when we cling to God in despair through lamenting. I love what Charles Spurgeon says regarding sorrows and afflictions. He says, I would venture to say, that the greatest blessing that God can give to any of us is health, with exception of sickness. Sickness, illness, sorrows, and afflictions has frequently been more of more use to us, to the saints of God, than health has. If some men that I know of could only be favored with a month of rheumatism, which is a type of illness, 
it would, by God's grace, mellow them or humble them or soften them marvelously. Spurgeon says it another way. Men will never become great in in divinity until they become great in suffering. This heaviness is of essential use to a Christian. If he would do good to others, there are none so tender as those who have been skinned themselves. Those who have been in the chamber of affliction know how to comfort those who are there. Do not believe that any man will become a physician unless he walks the hospitals. And I'm sure that no one will become a divine or become a comforter unless he lies in the hospitals as well as walks through it and has to suffer himself. So brothers and sisters, when God invites you, when God calls you to his school of suffering and sorrows, do not reject his scholarship. Brace tight in the bus of burgeoning faith. Brace tight in the bus of burgeoning faith. Spurgeon says again, O oh dear friend, when thy grief presses thee to the very dust, O oh dear friend, when the grief presses thee to the very dust, worship there. If that spot has come to be thy Gethsemane, then present there thy strong crying and tears unto thy God. Point number one, honestly lament. Point number two, how can Christians cling to hope in despair? Through desperate prayer, through desperate, persistent prayer, verses three through four. Whereas lamenting is only the starting point, lamenting is crying out to God in our pain, but now David teaches us further how to petition God in conjunction with our lamenting. Look at verses three through four. It says this, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, light up my eyes, Lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. There's so much rich theology in those short verses teaching us about prayer, teaching us about suffering, teaching us about the nature of salvation, teaching us about the perseverance of saints, teaching us about God's sovereignty, teaching us about biblical theology. So even as I'm preaching to you and you are listening, pray, pray, pray that I'll be able to explain it to you well in a way that you'll hear it, understand it, believe it, and apply it. But before we apply, let's observe and interpret. The psalmist's three petitions correlate with his complaints. First, because God seems to be forgetting him, he prays, consider me or look at me. Second, because God seems to be hiding his face or withholding his blessings and favor, David prays, answer me. Did you notice the urgency of David's request? This time, David again calls on the covenant name of God, Yahweh. But this time, more personally, David says, answer me, my Yahweh, my God, answer me. And thirdly, because God seems to have abandoned him and felt sorrow in his heart every waking moment, David prays, light up my eyes. And the word means to give light or to cause to shine. And so the psalmist is pleading to God, revive my physical strength and spiritual energy. Well, how would God do this? How would God do this? By causing his face to shine on him, by showing him favor and answering his prayer, perhaps by removing David's obstacles, perhaps by lifting up David from depression, perhaps by destroying David's enemies, perhaps by granting David's wishes and desires. 
Well, David gives reasons why God must do this. Lord, you have to consider me. You have to answer me. You have to light up my eyes. Why? Because his sorrows and afflictions are so great and so heavy that David feels if God doesn't come to his aid, he might die physically. That's what it means. Answer me, lest I sleep the sleep of death. His emotional and spiritual depression has tied him down to his bed all the day. And so if God did not look answer and give life, he would literally die. And again, as Pastor Zach Eschwein explains it so well, again, in Spurgeon's Sorrows, he says, there comes a time in most of our lives in which we no longer have the strength to lift ourselves out or to pretend even ourselves strong. Sometimes our minds want to break because life stomped on us and God didn't stop it. Close quote. So, We need to understand that David's prayers are rightly framed. It wasn't exaggeration, you see. It wasn't David being overly dramatic. It was desperation. It was life or death, and rightly so, because if God didn't come through, David had no reason to endure. David had no strength to persist. David had no grounds to stand on. So David prays, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. You see, David knew he was powerless against his enemies without God. It was a lost cause if God did not come through. Game over, defeat, death, done. When you think about so many self-professing Christians leaving the faith in the midst of ongoing trend within Bible-believing Christianity about deconstruction of faith. In light of so much cultural, societal, political oppositions to Christianity, and when you consider the divisions and implosions within our own churches and denominations and theological tribes, I wonder if the reason why so many self-professing Christians who have already abandoned faith or are abandoning faith are doing so because they don't understand, or much worse, they were never taught the lessons of these verses. So are you listening? Are you listening? Listen carefully. Brothers and sisters, they are shaken by the culture's religious persecution. They are shaken by the society's normalization of anti-biblical views. They are shaken by the politics and by the pandemic. They are shaken by the uncertainties of rising gas prices and inflation. They are shaken by the headlines and Twitter feeds and national tragedies and stock markets. They are dead, spiritually speaking. They are done. The enemy has prevailed over them. They experience no spiritual victory because their foes have robbed them from eternal rejoicing because they were shaken. All because they did not know how to carry their griefs to God in desperate, persistent prayer. Brothers and sisters, do you see what David is modeling for us? Do you see what this psalm is teaching us? Psalm 13 is instructing us in the necessity and urgency of desperate prayer. Are you listening? The Christian life is a battle mainly fought on our knees in privacy, not in the public square. The Christian faith is a war declared by our enemies against our souls, won by Christ already, yet tested for genuineness through fiery trials. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, dear Christian, 
So dear brother and sister, will you persevere in desperate prayer for your own souls, the souls of your church members, the souls of those around you whom the Lord has brought near through sorrows and through suffering? J.C. Ryle says in his book, A Call to Prayer, there is no duty in religion so neglected as private prayer. Truth be told, prayerlessness is an epidemic far too pervasive than any of us would like to acknowledge. It is an area of lack and want in our lives. We admit too lightly, too nonchalantly, yeah, I should pray more, too passively without carefully considering what it means regarding our true spiritual state. J.C. Ryle asks again and again in that book, A Call to Prayer, Christian, do you pray? Do you pray? That's why Pastor Tim Keller says the infallible test of spiritual integrity, and I would add spiritual vitality, is your prayer life. That's why Robert Murray McShane says what a man is alone and on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. That's why Martin Luther famously said to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Again, simply, just as when you don't breathe, you die, when you don't pray, your spiritual life withers. John Calvin says prayer is the chief exercise of your faith. So, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, where does prayer fit in the list of your priorities in your life? Over hangouts, over happy hour, over fellowship, over gym time, over sports, over TV. Not that any of those things are bad in itself, right? But I'm simply asking you if you find those things, leisure, pleasure, physical activity, and fellowship, a necessary part of enhancing your mental, emotional health, if that is true, then where does prayer fit in enhancing your spiritual health? I guarantee you a man or a woman who abandons faith, who abandons God, who abandons the church, has abandoned the Bible, has abandoned the prayer closet many, many weeks, many, many months, many, many years before he abandons the faith. Spurgeon says prayer is doubt's destroyer, ruins remedy, and the antidote to all anxieties. One more time. Prayer is doubt's destroyer, ruins remedy, and the antidote to all anxieties. So he says, continues to say, pray until you pray. Pray to be helped to pray and not give up praying because you cannot pray. For it is when you think you cannot pray, that is when you are actually praying. You see, that is the power of desperate, persistent prayer. Just when you think, I can't do this, and you go to him in desperation, that is when prayer begins. Spurgeon says again, prayer girds human weakness with divine strength, turns human folly into heavenly wisdom, and gives to troubled mortals the peace of God. Amen? Joseph Scriben was a devoted member of the Plymouth Brethren Church. He had a sincere desire to help those who are truly destitute. And so born in the early 1800s in Ireland, his parents had financial means enough to afford great education for him. And he attended and graduated from Trinity College in Dublin. Well, there he fell in love with a young lady who was eager to spend her life with him. However, on the day before their wedding... She fell from our horse while crossing a bridge and drowned in the water below. And as Joseph stood helplessly, he just watched her from the other side, unable to get to her. In an effort to overcome his sorrow, he began to wander, and by the age 25, his travels ended up in Canada. 
He became highly regarded by the people of that area where he tutored underprivileged children for many years in their schoolwork. And there he, made, he met another wonderful lady named Alisa. And again, he fell in love. They had exciting plans to be married. However, tragedy reared its ugly head again, once again. And she dies of pneumonia before they could marry. And so he spends the rest of his life among impoverished widows and sick people where he continued to serve for no wage, even sharing his own possessions, clothing, etc., with the less fortunate than himself. Several years later, around 1886, his body was pulled from a body of water, and in his honor, two monuments were erected in his honor, and on it, the lyrics of a poem that he had written several years before. The lyrics says these words, what a friend we have in Jesus all our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptation? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share. Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Brothers and sisters, how can Christians cling to hope and despair? Let lamenting lead to praying, but don't let it stop there. Third and finally, let it lead to point number three, faithful praising. Look at verse five through six. Verses five through six says this, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So what happened between sorrowing and singing, lamenting and praying? And so something happens in the midst of sorrowing and singing as David laments and prays. In the midst of taking it to the Lord in prayer, what happens? Faith begins to arise again. One commentator notes the poetic structure of the psalm. Four stanzas in verses 1 and 2. Three stanzas in verses 3 and 4. Two stanzas in verses 5 and 6. It's as the harsh waves of a raging ocean settling down in peaceful calm. I love Spurgeon's sermon title for this particular psalm, Howling Changed to Singing. Howling changed to singing. Note, just as in Psalm 12, the circumstances surrounding the psalmist has not changed. What has the turmoiled soul, which has now quieted down in stillness, that's the change because of renewed faith in prayer. It's also important to note why this specific prayer was so powerful and effective and how we too, you and I, have access and confidence for such prayer. So listen carefully. The phrase but I, or in other translations, but as for me is emphatic, which means to emphasize a decisive action, drawing special attention to that phrase. So what does the psalmist draw its readers and hearers attention to? You see, the whole of the verse modifies and is centralized in the word, the theme of our service today, steadfast love, which means God's covenantal, loyal love, God's hesed. So in the original Hebrew, the verse is actually read, but I, but as for me, in your steadfast love have trusted. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. 
in your steadfast love. You see, the psalmist declares, even in my sorrows, even in my misery, even in my suffering and despair, even in my prolonged waiting, as he laments, as he petitions God, he says, but as for me, in your hesed love, in your covenant love as you promised. And I love this. The scriptures are so specific and precise. In your hesed, look, look, look with me, come on now. Okay, verse five. In your hesed, I have trusted. It is the present perfect form. I have trusted and I do trust. And I love it right here. And my heart shall rejoice. It's the imperfect form, meaning I may not rejoice right now, but I will rejoice. There is certainty. There is future guarantee. In your hesed, royal, merciful, grace-filled love, I have trusted, I do trust, and I will rejoice in your salvation. I will be delivered from this despair. Hallelujah. And therefore, certain and confident of this hope of salvation, I will, I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. I will sing. The the grammar form indicates a strong desire. I will sing. I must sing. Which begs us the question, how is it possible? The psalmist was in deep depression. The psalmist was drenched in despair. Is the psalmist emotionally unstable? Uh, He was at the end of his rope, such to the point he feared even for his life itself. He was suicidal. But what's going on? Is the psalmist newfound joy an abstract illusion as that Buddhist nun said? Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you there is a reason why David's renewed enthusiasm, why David's revived faith is not fallacious. It's not fake, but certain. You see, David knew that God had made a covenant with him as according to 2 Samuel 7. David knew that God had once made a promise and God would keep his word. David knew that God's covenant would not end with him, that his line would not die with him. I'll read one of the passages, 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14, which says this, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. One of your own sons, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. I will take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In other words, David trusted in the promise of God's hesed love. He knew that he would rejoice in God's future salvation. So again, brothers and sisters, what made the difference when the sorrows and the sufferings of life surrounded David? It was simply the promise of God's salvation through the coming Messiah. Now, as students of Scripture, we know that David was a type of Jesus Christ, a type meaning a person or thing or a symbol of something future and distant or an example prepared, evidently designed by God to show a greater, truer, better meaning. As Colossians 2.17 says, these are the shadows of things to come, but the substance, but the real thing belongs to Christ. And so we see in the New Testament, Jesus is the greater, better David, whose throne would be established forever. Whereas David sought deliverance from the despair of sin in the coming one and cried out to the Lord, how long? 
Jesus cried out in Matthew 17, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? But instead of looking to the one, he himself would be the one who would bear all the despair, all the shame of others' sin on himself. Whereas David petitioned, consider me, answer me, light up my eyes, Jesus petitioned, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus would proclaim, I am the light of the world. And whereas David declared, but ask for me, Jesus proclaimed, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Brothers and sisters, in God's steadfast love, he gave us a new covenant through Jesus Christ. And this is what it reads, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Brothers and sisters, you are about to hear some evidence, some testimonies of how the Lord is working today. This is not just empty talk. This is truth. This is tangible. This is certainty. Hallelujah. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ miserable Christians can sing. It's only through Jesus Christ our despair can turn to praise. Only through Jesus Christ sorrowing people, sorrowful people can always be rejoicing. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the best news you will ever hear. It really is the best news you will ever hear. You will hear no news like it anywhere. Hallelujah. That God who is holy and just created all things in love for his own glory and for our pleasure. But man, having been tempted by Satan, chose to trust in himself, rely on ourselves, wanting to be gods for ourselves, deliberately disobeying God's word. And as a result, men, all men were separated from God, completely helpless and incapable, impossible to save himself from the vain and dissatisfying power and curse of sin. But whereas the worldly ideologies and philosophy says, abandon hope, God had a plan from the very beginning to redeem man and forgive man for their sins. What was the plan? It was not a backup plan. It was the first plan. It was plan A, to send his only son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died. He took our place as a substitute on the cross. He paid the debt that we should have paid in eternal hell. They thought it was over. They thought it was done, but it wasn't because on the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from death which meant that God accepted his perfect sacrifice, which meant that Christ defeated sin, death, and Satan forever, that whosoever, anyone who would repent and believe in him will not die and go to hell, but participate in his resurrection and live the abundant life here on earth and eternal life forevermore. Amen? And when he returns, brothers and sisters, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every tongue will confess that he indeed is the savior and king of this world. On that day, our hearts will rejoice in his salvation. Amen? So if you are here and you are not a Christian, we welcome you. Thank you so much for being here. We're so glad that you are here. You are our answer to prayer. And since you are here, let me ask you the all-important question who or what can you, do you rely on and hope in for your soul? 
Have you figured it out yet? That you yourself cannot, should not be the answer? That yourself is not enough? The fact of the matter is, apart from Christ, your despair has no relief. It has no relief. It has no end. For those of you who reject God's Son, you invite not only the sufferings here on earth, but a greater suffering in eternal hell. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. So by the declaration of this gospel, by the preached word, Jesus invites you this afternoon. In your despair, in your sorrows, in your sins, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Trust in him. He is the certain guaranteed hope that you can cling to and rely on. Repent of your sins. Believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you and trust him with your whole life today and tomorrow and the next day and forevermore. Brothers and sisters in Christ, how can Christians cling to hope in despair? Learn this, learn this, know this, practice this, live this, honestly lament, persistently pray, faithfully praise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we love you, how we thank you, how we praise you for your steadfast love. Father, this is more than feelings. This is truth, that the Savior of the world came so that we may live. Father, in this world, there is no God that even comes close. No other religion declares such enormous reality. But how could we make sense of creation? How could we make sense of humanity but to know that there is a divine designer who is sovereignly in control? Father, thank you for the word that is the good news of our salvation, of hope that we have in Christ. Help us to not abandon hope in our sorrows and despair. Help us to cling to him who is the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus' name, amen.